Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty and end time events and Bible prophecy. And we have a special guest today from Religious Liberty TV, attorney Michael Peabody. Mr. Peabody, thank you for returning again as a guest for this podcast. Oh, thank you. It's good to be back. Now, there's been a lot of issues regarding religious liberty in the past six months. Is that correct? It always is, but this time there are even more than normal. Now, I noticed when COVID-19 and the lockdowns first started, you were more amiable to it, but you started to slowly change your position. Can you tell me why the change of your thoughts on this issue? Well, initially, the the idea about the lockdowns was that it was going to be two weeks of staying home to flatten the curve. And for that sacrifice of two weeks, the issue would essentially be resolved and we would be back to normal. But as that progressed, I began noticing that the shift was moving from healthcare and medical opinions shift, you know, guiding the policies to fairness and guiding the policies. And then there are legal challenges as to who had the right to make the rules. And it started to go off the tracks a bit. Doesn't mean the COVID virus is not real, but there's a question of authority and a question of infringement on constitutional rights that I think need to be addressed. Can you elaborate more on the constitutional issues right now with COVID-19? Well, essentially, the there's a separation of church and state. And one the fundamental thing that churches do is meet. And when the government steps in and says, you cannot meet under penalty of law, in any other context, that would be extremely troubling if the government said that churches could no longer meet um, during a time of crisis. It would point us that there was a major fissure in the Constitution and that things were going very badly from a legal perspective. So I was very concerned as this progressed to the point where they were talking about possibly arresting pastors. In New York, they were talking about permanently closing churches that didn't comply. It started taking on a very authoritarian tone. Um, Now, don't get me wrong. I think the virus is real. I think people need to be careful. I think they need to act with wisdom. But I also think churches have the authority to make those decisions and not simply give them up. Let's say you have, you know, at your home, the government said, you know what, we need to take your keys away from you for a couple of weeks because your house is not really safe right now. And so you say, okay, cool, here's my keys. And then two weeks is up, you come back and say, hey, I need to go in and get my stuff. I need to go back in. And the government said, well, no, sorry, you're going to be out for a lot longer than that. And so over time, it becomes, well, I guess I'm never going to go back home again. Um, and the, it's very difficult to get those keys back once they're given up. So my main concern is that churches recognize what they've given up, when they've given it up, and at least be able to trace back those steps where they gave it up so that they can regain those rights in the future. And what I've seen happening a lot recently is that pastors and churches have sort of given up and said, Whatever the government says is right because they have all the authority in my church and therefore we're not going to meet anymore. And I know over time it's, you know, people have met outdoors. Some churches have met anyway. Some churches only meet online. Some meet in the parking lot. Some meet every other week. So there's a wide range of what people are doing, but they're sort of not regaining the authority to reopen when they need to reopen. And my concern is that that has been lost. And over time, I've seen 
the view numbers of online church services go down. I've seen there be a huge, um, there, there's a shift in society. People no longer feel the church is essential. And um, an example would be in the Cayman Islands, of, there's a church, Seventh-day Adventist church that was going to, they, want, they asked for it to be built, and the government said no. Now, of course, this was, um, it was had to do with zoning purposes and stuff like that. But I was thinking, well, why don't they just meet online? You know, if that's just as good as going to church, why does a church building need to exist during these times? Why should a church building ever exist? And over time, churches that have said that they are non-essential eventually are going to become non-essential. And they'll become an optional part of people's religious life. Um, and obviously, it's not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue of religious practice and discipline, um, self-discipline to be able to go to church. And if you have kids, you know, it's it's a real struggle, even with little kids, to get them to church on, on the weekends. I know a lot of families that kind of have skipped Sabbath school or skipped church because it's too difficult when the churches are open. And now the kids are like, hey, you know what? Why should I go to church? It's not necessary. We went without it for a whole year. We didn't miss anything. Let's just keep going like this. You know, we'll watch it every so often, maybe during the week, and we'll catch up with it on the internet. So that's sort of my concern about it. I, I, I basically feel like church is slipping away. Is there a middle ground that can be established between the two factions or two sides? I think the middle ground is churches must continually focus on the fact that they are essential. They cannot say, we are not essential, it's not necessary for you to meet with us. When churches do not meet because of the virus, they need to make it clear that this is a very unfortunate temporary situation and that it is true that what we're doing right now during the virus to keep everybody safe is not the equivalent of actually going to church. And I know that seems obvious to a lot of people, but parents need that so they can convince their children about it. Church members need that because in Southern California, it's a wonderful climate. You know, we can go out, you can go to the beach if you're not going to church. Other places, you know, I, um, it's it's much more difficult. But, I mean, it's you know, the climate isn't quite the same. There's not as much other things to do. But it's easy to miss church in Southern California for any number of legitimate reasons. And I really get a sense that that may be gone forever if, it, if this continues much longer. Would app-based contract tracing be more of a lesser evil for COVID-19 than lockdowns? Well, basically, app-based contract tracing uses your cell phone to find out who you were near who may or may not have COVID-19. And if you have been tested positive for COVID-19, it would warn anybody that you have been in contact with that you had COVID-19 or that somebody that they were in contact with had COVID-19. And um, it uses either Wi-Fi connections. If you're on a shared Wi-Fi network, it may use location. It could use Bluetooth or just regular cell phone triangular, um, you know, navigation systems. In other words, cell phone towers are located at certain distances away from your phone, and the phone can tell how far you are from certain towers and figure out where you were. That's been used for several years now to track Criminal activity. So if a suspect in a crime was near a certain location, they can tell based on the location of the cell phone. And so they want to use that technology to track people to find out who they associate with, keep records of those associations, and then use those associations 
to determine where you were if you were exposed. And possibly those locations could be used to begin to assemble maps of who you regularly associate with. Um, and, and there's always a level of paranoia when it comes to addressing any type of infringement on privacy. I know that in the days before social media, nobody really knew who your friends were. Nobody knew what your political positions were on certain issues. People didn't know very much about you other than what you chose to tell other people. And if they wanted to find that out, they'd probably have to go ask those people what you told them. And it would be hearsay. Now, because of social media and contract tracing ability, there is no longer a hearsay exception to the information concerning your whereabouts and what you have said on social media because it's tied down to a primary source and can be used as evidence against you. So I always have constitutional concerns about this kind of thing. I don't like privacy infringements. I don't like the idea that somebody's going to be able to tell who I associate with or where I've been. I don't think that should be public knowledge. And I don't like the idea that the authorities could somehow determine that information about a person short of a court order for a crime that's already been committed. Um, essentially, voluntarily submitting that type of information to authorities is problematic. And it also demonstrates a certain amount of distrust. If, if you've tested positive for COVID-19, you know who you've been in contact with and you can communicate that information out to them. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I think the idea that it's presented as an alternative to lockdowns is, um, is a concern. Obviously, lockdowns have their own core source of problems. You have issues with mental health from being you know, unable to communicate with people. You have relationships that suffer, you have jobs that suffer, you have finances that suffer. So there are a host of problems with regard to being unable to meet with other people or being in contact with them. By and large, short of contract tracing, those other ideas of social isolation are not highly enforceable. Um, what I do see happening is once, assuming COVID-19 continues to progressively get worse, Contract tracing will no longer only be used for determining whether or not you have spread COVID to somebody else, but it will also determine whether or not you are violating the rules that you are supposed to follow as a citizen who has um, living in a community that has separation rules. So if they look at the network and say, oh, let's see who, how many people are closely affiliated with each other, who's meeting together. They could actually pull up a map and see where you've been and see what clusters are there and then go make arrests or fines or whatever. So I'm very uncomfortable with it. Um, I think eventually it's going to be something the society will not accept, but they, they may, and and that could be an issue. Um, the direct evil, pretty much the, shut, the lockdowns affect everybody. And, you know, businesses still remain closed. Um Contract tracing will affect people who get arrested because they have violated various um, community rules or could be fined or whatever. Um, both are evil. I, I think they, I think people need to, you know, take on some personal responsibility and try to disassociate from, from other people for a while because of the COVID-19. But there are certainly problems with both of those approaches.
this past summer, we had an important religious liberty case in the Supreme Court, Espinoza versus Montana, about religious schools and employees. You wrote an article on that. Can you tell us more about what you wrote in your article? Yeah, what happened in Montana was there's a state legislative program that said that individual citizens or taxpayers in the state of Montana could receive up to a $150 tax credit for money that they donated to one of several K through 12 um, scholarship funds. And in other words, if you, there was a private school that you wanted to donate money to, to help students attend, you could then write that off on your taxes. Um, in a sense, it's, it's not that different from giving money to a school for a worthy child fund type of thing. And I know in our religious traditions of the Adventist Church, a lot of schools have a worthy child fund, and the money you give toward that is tax deductible. But this would allow a specific tax credit. A tax credit is different from a, a tax deduction because a credit is simply an amount you don't have to pay. So if you pay 30% taxes normally and you donate $150, then you will save $50 or so, roughly. Um, if you have the tax credit program, you get to keep the full $150 and get it back from the state. So the state of Montana is one of several states that had what's called a Blaine Amendment that prohibits states from giving public funds to religious institutions either directly or indirectly. And in Montana, of course, the majority of private schools, like they are almost everywhere, are religious. So what happened was the Montana Department of Revenue enacted what's called Rule 1, which um, specifically excluded the religious schools. So, in other words, legislature passes a rule. The Montana Department of Revenue says part of this is unconstitutional, so the Department of Revenue decides to scrap part of the legislation. Anyway, this case reached the Montana Supreme Court that threw out the program in its entirety saying the Department of Revenue can't legislate and decide that part of the program is invalid. So we're going to throw the whole thing out because it violates the No Aid Amendment, the Blaine Amendment, and that the um, court could not overrule the state's constitution, which in included the No Aid provision. So the case went up to the Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court was going to decide whether the state's constitutional's prohibit, prohibition of no aid um, would apply to this, and more importantly, whether the Blaine Amendment or the no aid amendment was constitutional at all. And I didn't think the Supreme Court would hear this case because the Montana Supreme Court had thrown out the program and the Department of Revenue had modified the program extensively, so the issue would have been essentially moot. Because after the Supreme Court threw out the program, the legislature backed up and withdrew the program altogether anyway. So there's no program in place. So I thought in order for the um, litigants to prevail and say that the Montana program was essential, the Supreme Court would have to issue some type of rule that would reestablish a tax credit program for private school donations in the state of Montana. Um, because that would be other revenue. So in other words, 
Montana has a unique program. The Supreme Court rules on the program and orders them to reinstate a program that they had just gotten rid of. Um, the Supreme Court did issue a ruling on the case, and they found that the program did not violate the U.S. Constitution. Um, so even though the actual issue was somewhat moot due to the recent le- actions of the legislature, the Supreme Court did find that the program was constitutional. And I would have to see whether or not the Supreme Court issued an order that they reestablish the program. I kind of doubt they did, but I do think that the um, Supreme Court, and I know the Supreme Court issued a ruling that that the Blaine Amendment um, had serious constitutional issues. Um, this is in line with the Trinity Lutheran Church case, and these are a line of cases in which religious institutions have repeatedly argued that not should the wall of separation of church and state be lowered when it comes to state money, but states should be mandated to allow religious schools to participate in funding programs that are primarily intended for secular institutions, um, such as the state, in the case in the Trinity Lutheran Church. And now we're seeing in the Montana case where they're saying, you know, you need to throw out your constitutional prohibitions on state aid um, because they violate the free exercise clause. How would the Adventist Church uh, be in line with this case? You know, I can't speak for the church as as to how they would respond to it. I know that um, there are oftentimes disagreements between the institutional portions of, you know, the the schools and the legal departments. And sometimes they, they may disagree on this stuff. And by that, I mean... In the state of Florida, they have a school voucher program um, that has provided major money to an Adventist school there. And um, so many churches and schools would support the idea of the funding, although you may have disagreement from the legal end of it where people would say, hey, look, this is a open door to increased regulation of religious educational institutions, which is my concern. Now, there was another Supreme Court case, if I recall, dealing with religious schools and employment that you commented on. Is that correct, this past summer? Yes, in July, there were two Supreme Court decisions involving Los Angeles area schools where teachers had claimed that they were discriminated against on the basis of age and on disability where they would have likely prevailed had they been working for secular employers. But the Supreme Court ruled that in both of these cases, these schools had the right to terminate these teachers or make other employment decisions free from state interference under the First Amendment. Uh, one of these cases involved a teacher named Agnes Morrissey Baru, who taught at Our Lady of Guadalupe School, who claimed she was demoted and her contract not renewed because the school intended to replace her with a younger teacher. And the other case involved Kristen Beal, who taught at St. James School, who was terminated after requesting a leave of absence to obtain breast cancer treatment. The schools in both of these cases got the cases dismissed on summary judgment after claiming the ministerial exception. And the Ninth Circuit in both cases overturned the summary judgments, allowing the cases to go forward. The Ninth Circuit held the teachers did not meet the requirements of the ministerial exception 
because they did not have the formal training, religious background, or hold themselves out as being religious teachers. The schools appealed the decisions on up to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court decisions um, found that under the 2012 decision in Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church versus EEOC, that the ministerial exception did apply to these teachers. Now, to be clear, the examples given in these cases of age discrimination and being terminated for requesting a leave of absence to undergo breast cancer treatment um, seem egregious. And both of these cases had not actually gone to trial because they were dismissed before they got that chance to go to trial because the school simply said they could do whatever they want because they were ministerial employees. So we don't really know all the facts behind each one of these cases, but based on the facial allegations that these teachers raised, these would have been serious, serious complaints had they, the teachers been working for secular schools. Um, the Supreme Court, though, also doesn't want to get in the business of telling churches what to do when it comes to religion or telling religious schools what to do when it comes to religion. So the lesson here is if you're going to work for a religious school, you're really not only sacrificing income or when you could make more in a secular or public environment, but you are also sacrificing the right to sue if you are discriminated against for almost any reason. So the, the schools, they oftentimes will say, well, we have some reason not to make a decision that would be consistent with what would happen in the secular world. And in Hosanna Tabor, that case involved a teacher who was terminated after threatening to file a complaint for the way that she was treated. So the, the school in that case, um, Hosanna Tabor, said, well, you um, actually violated our religious teachings that prohibit you from suing us. And that was the basis for the loss, for the determination in that case. And the Supreme Court ultimately upheld that decision saying, that it wouldn't look into whether or not that was a valid reason to terminate a teacher because they were working at a religious school. And since religious schools are pervasively sectarian, pretty much anybody working there is going to have some type of ministerial exception coverage. So there are very limited rights for religious teachers on, or for teachers of any type at a religious school. So would this case be a cushion or buffer for more liberal states to impose, say, alternative lifestyle type employees to be mandated by civil rights provisions to be hired from these schools? Well, this absolutely would would keep the schools away from litigation on those issues. So there are, you know, for schools that have religious beliefs that require certain lifestyle choices, they would be protected in these cases. And unfortunately, the cases that were raised to challenge that idea were pretty egregious. But, I mean, if you're going to take a poster child for a case, if you want to challenge the ministerial exception, you find somebody who's fired for wanting to take time off work for breast cancer treatment. You know, I mean, it sounds pretty bad. So the, the case itself was pretty egregious, but the principle behind the case is solid or the principle behind the decision is solid it's just a matter of schools being able to actually 
say, look, you know, we are going to be better than the rest of the world in terms of how we treat our employees. We are going to meet or exceed the standards in our community insofar as they do not violate our moral and religious beliefs. Hiding behind the free exercise clause in order to treat people badly when it is not mandated by a religious belief um, can lead to huge problems in the future, and it, it doesn't come off well. So for the time being, t- schools are safe, but they need to also they have to recognize that they answer to a higher source when it comes to how they treat people. Now, from a Seventh-day Adventist eschatological perspective, should we have concerns of predominantly Catholic Supreme Court? You know, um, we've got a Catholic Supreme Court. Joe Biden is a Catholic. Nancy Pelosi is a Catholic. And I don't know what Mitch McConnell's religious background is in the Senate. Um, But we've got at least, you know, several of the branches of government that are are pretty much um, run by Catholics. And of course, Catholics disagree on stuff. Catholics, the Catholic Church is a very large organization and has a lot of people within its ranks in the United States who disagree with each other on core fundamental issues. So there's a lot of concern as to their religious background. However, it should be encouragement for people who are not Catholic to encourage their young people to go into law and to go into public policy and to run for office because we do need to have some religious diversity with the higher levels. The loss of diversity, loss of opinions about different issues is concerning. Um, With regard to the Catholic makeup of the Supreme Court, the reality is, you know, you can look at the abortion cases and see where people came down on it. There's not a consistent... Um, way in which they address the abortion issue, um, even though the Catholic religious beliefs are very much pro-life. So it doesn't look like that's been carried out in the decisions that have been made at the Supreme Court. So I'm not overly concerned about it, but I do think diversity is something to be appreciated and uh, pursued. Final question. What implications do you see of the incoming new administration on religious liberty? That is a huge question. You know, we're still waiting for the final certification of the votes, but it looks like Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States, along with Kamala Harris as vice president. And I think what we've got to watch for um, at this point are going to be issues of free speech, issues that could impact the ministerial exception um, to see if there's any type of legislative activity intended to override the Supreme Court's decisions. Uh, We may be seeing an increase in pressure on higher educational institutions that accept state aid to begin to modify their religious beliefs in order to become generally acceptable to people who may disagree with them, but as a prerequisite for receiving state aid. So, Anytime you have government money going to private religious institutions, I would watch for a lot more regulations becoming down along those lines. Um, I also don't see any let up on the, the church closing rules. I think those issues are going to be primarily addressed at the U.S. Supreme Court, and those cases are actually being filed now, um, and we'll see what happens at that end. 
I do think on the positive side, we may see some more uh, appreciation of religious diversity and protection of minority religious rights. So that's something to, to keep an eye on um, under the free exercise clause. But again, I think it's going to be a real important time for religious institutions that receive state aid to evaluate what they want to do in the future. Mr. Piwati, thank you so much for coming on this podcast in such limited time. I know your time is valuable. Uh, you're always a welcome guest here, and we thank you, and we value your legal insights. And before we close, can you say a quick word of prayer for us? Sure. My dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we could meet here to discuss these issues that are happening in the U.S. and around the world. Please guide the leaders, guide the people who are making decisions in the courts who have to decide these cases. And be with us throughout this holiday season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.